Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WADEM Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. Today, an example of how music can unite us. We'll hear about an annual performance that draws from diverse traditions and welcomes everyone. Conductor Don Milton will give us a preview of the Atlanta Gay Men's Holiday Concert. Maybe you remember Y2K, or recall when the iPod was new. A group of Atlanta theater artists have taken on 20 years of technology and produced six virtual plays. Imagine a couple falling in and out of love over Skype. Teenagers having a conversation in a chat room. And an older couple using iPads to keep in touch with family overseas while facing Alzheimer's. These storylines summarize three of the six plays that make up Interface an evening of new virtual plays. Joining us now via Zoom are theater critic and playwright Calandra Smith, co-producer Bridget Burton, and playwright Aaron Considine. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Interface shows so much effort and ambitious project. How did it come together? That is a fun story. Uh, Bridget, please feel free to chime in if I start to leave out any details. But essentially, um, you know, as you know, Lois, I'm a theater critic and and have been for almost 10 years. Bridget and I went to uh, college together actually at the University of Georgia, where we both majored in theater. And Bridget has been a theater producer and artist and manager for many years. And we were talking about how we miss theater so much and how we were seeing many theaters in Atlanta and across the country trying to put up pre-recorded performances or not putting up theater at all. And all the while, you know, artists weren't able to work and it just seemed like a lot of doom and gloom. And so we wanted to do something that would inspire hope and healing, that would give artists an opportunity to create and that would give Fulton County residents an opportunity to engage with the arts. And that is how we started musing about Interface. Mm. 
you know, Calendra is saying, you know, the general, like, good feels part of it. But I think what's, you know, of course, our friendship has been over, you know, 10 years at this point. And there have been special projects that I've had. I was like, hey, I have this great idea. And she's like, sure, what do you, tell me what do you need me to do. And that's essentially what happened. We were on the phone one day and she said, hey, I have this idea. And I was like, okay, I know about this grant. And <laughs> so it was just kind of just like us and our friendship. I think that's really important, I guess, about this experience is that us as creatives and wanting to support one another and seeing the value in our our skill sets and gifts and talents as artists and saying like, hey, I have this idea. I know you can help me do it. And hey, I trust you. And like, I'm gonna help you do it in whatever that is needed. So this is just kind of the course of our friendship that we're just putting together different visions and executing them over time. Isn't it wonderful when the personal and professional can overlap or interweave like that? It is. It's been it's been a great experience. I told her uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were deeply in the trenches of, you know, trying to put together like design ideas and all of this stuff. I was like, I wouldn't do this with anybody else because otherwise I'd be losing my mind. And, you know, we're just so fortunate that the Fulton County Board of Commissioners believed in this vision. This grant, uh, this is a grant based project fully funded by them. And so we're just grateful that they also saw what we were doing as something valuable that the community needs right now because this has just been a year of chaos and we're hoping to bring some comedy and some clarity to that. The virtual theater program has employed 22 local artists to put on these shows. What can you tell us about the submission and audition processes? Well, I will say that when it, it was, when we, as soon as we found out we got the grant, we immediately started thinking about the playwrights. And so we made a short list. And when I say a short list, I mean, it was probably a list of 50 playwrights in Atlanta who we knew of. And we just started kind of reaching out and, and having discussions about who would be interested um, in doing something like this and experimenting with something like this. Who would be willing to experiment with us in turning the screen into the stage and writing for that medium? Because each and every one of the plays that is a part of Interface incorporates the technology. So from an audience perspective, it's not gonna feel like you're seeing a show that's supposed to be on a stage on screen. These plays are meant to be experienced on the screen. So the technology is fully incorporated. And so we had to think about who are the people who we think would be willing to experiment on something like this with us. And we kind of created that short list and made some asks. Now, when it came to auditions, Bridget was the audition maven. <laughs> <laughs> and we had, how many Bridget was it? How many, We had close to a hundred people submit, didn't we? We did. I did an audition with Black Theater Girl Magic over, you know, I guess in August. And they'd use Auditions Manager as the platform to do it. And I was like, okay, let's try it. And that was interesting because, again, you're trying to do things virtually. And a lot of the platforms that we're utilizing are not conducive to a virtual like experience. So that is something that we've ha had to learn, but we were posting through Facebook and sending out texts to friends and family. So we had 30 live auditions. You know, we did auditions over Zoom. We had 50 video submissions. And then we still had people that when we posted on backstage, a lot of people auditioned through that too, like submitted through that. And I think that was an additional 30 to 40 people through backstage as well. Wow. Would you talk about how diversity and inclusivity factored into the selection process? I think for us, we we really just thought about, you know, whose voices aren't being heard in the Atlanta theater community, or if they have been, you know, 
how can we amplify their voices? And I think that was something that, you know, Calundra's seeing theater, my theater trajectory has been non-traditional since I've been at performing arts venues, I've been at music concert venues, so I interact and engage. I also work for local government, so I interact and engage with a lot of different artists and a lot of different levels. So that was something that we thought about, like, this person has not been commissioned at this theater company, but they're a playwright. Let's give them this opportunity. If this person, you know, they've assistant directed at this theater company, but we think they'll be really great as a director or if this person, you know, is just a college student and they haven't really had an opportunity to audition with their university theater. Hey, let's, you know, let's learn about them and let, let's give this opportunity. So I think we were really intentional and strategic about whose voices can we amplify whose gifts and talents can we showcase that, you know, although we have amazing talent in the land of theater that is always, you know, people who've been a part of apprentice companies and who are always on our stages and we love them. We kind of wanted to like, you know, the no names in the sense, you know, that let's give those people an opportunity. And what we end up having is a, a diverse group of actors and actresses of all different ages. And we were really excited about seeing that come together. The first company meeting that we had on November 1st, it was like, oh, wow, <laughs> look at this. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. Between our playwrights, our directors, and our actors, our designers, I don't know of a theater company in Atlanta that it has done something with an ensemble and a group of artists that is this diverse. I mean, when I say we've got, I think our youngest person might be 19 or 20 and our oldest person might be in their 60s or 70s. I mean, we've got a range um, of people working on, on this project. And then we also thought about Fulton County, you know, we want to represent Atlanta and Fulton County as the, as with the swath of diversity as it is, we want to touch every community. So it was important for us to not just think in black and white, but also think about the Latino community, thinking about the South Asian community, think about East Asian communities. You know, we wanted to touch every demographic that we could that demonstrates the diversity of Atlanta. Would you tell us about the title of the series, Interface? <laughs> you know, I think that we first thought, when I was first thinking about this, I think Interface seemed like a good title because right now we're all using some sort of technological intermediary, right? We're always on, you know, Zoom, WebEx, Microsoft Teams, you name it. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter. We're communicating with some something in between us and each other, particularly during the pandemic. And so Interface just seemed to kind of capture that experience really well, but also, you know, there's a cost to that. For many, many years, scholars have been saying that, you know, oh, social media has forever changed the way that we communicate and we'll never be able to communicate. You know, people will no longer crave in-person interaction. And I think that this pandemic has proven that that hypothesis was wrong. People are still craving engagement. And so I think that this interface will allow people to be able to, through these short plays, because they're all, they're six 15-minute plays, they'll be able to kind of reflect on how their relationship with technology has evolved over the last, uh, you know, 20 years, where we start in the year 2000 with chat rooms and we end in the year 2023 with kind of the unknown. And they'll be able to also think about how the different interfaces they use impact their life and their connections. Erin, your play, Good Man Hunter, not to be confused with Goodwill Hunting, is set in 2015. 
According to the Pew Research Center, between 2013 and 2015, online dating tripled among those between the ages of 18 and 24. Why did you want to focus on the world of online dating specifically in the year 2015? Well, I think that in 2015, you're seeing a huge rise, not just in the online dating, but in online presence and influencer culture. So you're seeing young people who have grown up with a YouTube culture and Tumblr and Twitter, and they define themselves with these images. So by 2015, they're interacting so much online and they've defined themselves so completely by how they show themselves that way that if they get their heart broken how my question was how would you handle a very public facing breakup which you see anyway in in a celebrity culture like ours but when you put that kind of young person youtube influencer millions of views and eyeballs watching it happen how do you manage that and then still go back to healing and sneaking back into having that kind of dating life? Is it possible even? So I kind of put these three girlfriends together who are trying to still have that close friend, supportive relationship and explore what happens when one of them kind of explodes in this manner. I just love the the contrast between the humor of 2015 and Vine culture and all the dumb jokes that we had. I felt like everything was a one-liner. Everything was 144 characters on Twitter and it was hilarious and wonderful. But then what do you do when you have real emotions? Where do you put them? Yeah. You mentioned Vine, the main character of your play, is a Vine star. For those unfamiliar with the app, would you describe Vine? (laughs) Wow. Okay. Well, for our younger listeners, it's like TikTok. And for our older listeners who are my age or older, it's um, like America's Funniest Home Videos, but shorter. (laughs) (laughs) Does that translate? (laughs) Yes. Vine was just really short, hilarious, repeatable comedy. And it was, I think people used it as a distraction from whatever was happening and kind of a shorthand of communication. And it was, uh, you know, uplifting and fun. It was like a bunch of commercials all put together, but only the funny ones. Aaron K. Considine wrote the play Good Man Hunter. She was joined by co-creators of the project Interface, Calandra Smith and Bridget Burton. We'll be back with more of this conversation after a short break. You are listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. 
For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with Calandra Smith and Bridget Burton, co-creators of the virtual theater series Interface. They were joined by Aaron K. Considine, one of the featured playwrights. Here, I asked Calandra Smith why they chose a mix of genres. We gave each playwright a very loose premise and we let them kind of take it away in terms of the direction that we went in with it. So the three comedies and the three dramas is purely serendipity. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, we did not set out to say, okay, you're going to write a comedy. We gave them each a premise and a year. And we said, incorporate the technology, go. And (laughs) they went. And they did a fantastic job. I mean, I think that they got so creative with it. Like, I mean, even with Aaron's play, Good Man Hunter, her premise was it's set in 2015, a woman's going out on a date and she might get ghosted. And that was it. And she pulled in the Vine and the YouTube couple. And we, I will tell you, we sat in on rehearsals for Good Man Hunter last week and it is laugh out loud hilarious. Like it's... <laughs> It's so funny. So that balance of comedy and drama, I think, is going to give people moments of, you know, tension and release, which we talk about in the theater all the time. You're going to have moments where the tears well up in your eyes and you're going to have, for sad reasons. And you're going to have moments where they well up in your eyes because you're laughing so hard you're crying. And I think that, you know, being able to experience that full range of emotion is part of the reason why people go to the theater and what they're missing right now. And so we're excited to be able to provide that in a safe way. Erin, you did such a great job explaining your play concisely. Calandra, Bridget, can you give us just the briefest description of the other plays? Yes, absolutely. So like I said, six 15 minute plays, the whole evening's gonna be two hours, which is like the length of a movie. So it's gonna be easy to consume at home. You can you know, tune in for as much as you want or as little as you want and have a full experience. So the uh, six plays are, the first one is called Chatterbox by Quinn Xavier Hernandez. It is two teenagers in the year 2000 navigating their ways through a chat room for the first time. So that's going to be the first play. Second play is set in 2005. It's by Amina McIntyre. It is called Sunrise, Sunset. And that's the one you mentioned earlier where we're going to see a couple kind of navigating a long distance relationship over Skype. And that one has lots of moments of humor and it's so good. And then you have uh, the third play, which is set in 2010. It's called Girl, um, older couple trying to stay connected with family overseas using the iPad, while also the woman is going through Alzheimer's and, and kind of seeing herself in Bollywood films. And that's beautifully written by Mariam Khalid. And then we have Good Man Hunter set in 2015. We've heard about that from Aaron. And then in 2020, we have Free Game by Elliot Dixon, which this is going to be an interesting mix of comedy and drama where we have two sets of fathers and sons. We have a father and son who are both pro athletes and a father and son who are both doing time together in jail all during the pandemic. 
And they're realizing they have more in common than they think as they engage over this uh, prison education program. So that's a really unexpected story and, and gonna be really, really humorous and, and, and poignant at the same time. And then lastly is uh, the play that I wrote, which is called Long Time No See. It is set in the year 2023. We kind of mess up the timeline with that one. And it's set in the future where two uh, women who used to hang out together for happy hour um, every week all of a sudden don't see each other for two years and then they try to get back together after there's a COVID-19 vaccine, but they find that so much has changed and it's not so easy to, to get back together again. Wow. I'm listening to your descriptions and thinking, I hope these plays will be expanded in duration and length at some time in the future too. Technology has been a saving grace for everyone this year, whether it's online teaching, students taking classes online, or keeping up with family and friends, or here we are conducting interviews over Zoom. We can stay connected while we're all living or working apart now. How is our dependence on technology addressed in these plays. You know, it's interesting when we talk about sunrise, sunset, and, you know, you have this couple that meet and they are instantly connected. They're, you know, they, it's something like, you know, you meet someone, you're like, you know, it's something about you and I want to get a chance to know you, but one is like, hey, I'm moving across the country. And so them trying to like hold on to their, to this notion of there's something about you and I want to stay connected with you. And they're like, hey, let's try Skype, you know, like, I can see you, it's bigger, bigger than my Nokia phone. You know, I had Nokia phone and played Snake on it. One of the characters is doing that. And so she's like, well, let's try Skype. Let's try to like stay connected. Let's, you know, have a little date night. Let's do different things to keep the, the fire, you know, ignited. And we kind of just see this evolving of this relationship over a year about like, can that technology sustain them in this notion of like there's something about you so I don't want to give away too much of what happens but that's kind of like that that notion of that and I think they use that medium of Skype to just try it out and see what happens I think for you know 2015 in in Aaron's play which is hilarious you know we have me and Calandra have a weekly kind of happy hour with our girlfriends and just the connection of this friendship that they are utilizing FaceTime or group chat, a video chat to kind of stay connected and support each other through this new endeavor of like dating. So I think our dependence on technology is like, we're trying to find ways to like, hold on to the notion of there's something about this relationship. There's something about this connection with this person that I wanna hold on to and whatever medium I have to do. But for these plays, we're seeing Skype, we're seeing a chat room, we're seeing, FaceTime, we're seeing, you know, QR codes and long time no see, you know, and menus, but there's something about you and the technology is the execution of that or the the manifestation of there's something about you. Mm -hmm. Calandra, your play Long Time No See expands on this subject. What do you think has been the impact of technology on our social skills and the way we view relationships. You know, that's such a interesting, I was, it's interesting. I was having a conversation uh, with someone about this the other night. I think that, you know, there's the good and the bad, right? I mean, technology enables us to connect with people, whether they're next door or, you know, 
20,000 miles away, which is great. In an instant, we can be connected. We can keep in touch. Things aren't so tenuous. You know, I remember when I was younger, you know, when your family moved to a different house or you changed schools, that was it. You made a new set of friends. You didn't keep in touch with the friends of old because, you know, people's phone numbers changed and, and there was not necessarily, everybody didn't have a computer in their house. And so there was you know, this need to kind of reinvent and remake yourself um, with every new uh, phase of life or new move you made. I think now, as much as it's good that people can stay connected via technology, I think also we take it for granted and we discard each other a little too easily. I believe it's really easy to see someone as like an avatar or as a Facebook profile or as, you know, just an email account that you can engage with as you desire to. But what does that discarding do to a soul? I think that we've lost sight of that in many ways. And we've seen that manifest, unfortunately, in some of the worst ways in our politics in this country, where we see people simply as this online personality uh, that isn't, you know, at the grocery store with you, whose children don't go to school with your children. So I think technology has done some good and some bad. I think that it's been good in helping people stay connected who want to stay connected, but I think it's also disconnected us from humanistic value in some ways. But I think the good thing is that because technology is something that we created, we can decide how we want it to play out in our lives. Yes. In fact, speaking of technology, these plays will stream live on YouTube and Facebook. Would you talk about the decision to offer the plays live rather than pre-recorded? Sure. So I think that one of the things that to me makes theater theater, and, and Bridget and I were having this conversation when we were conceiving of the idea of you know, of interface, we said, well, you know, just because you put a camera on theater doesn't make it film, right? There are artistic conventions of theater that exist, whether it's on stage or virtual. And we thought the live element was really something we were missing. And so that's something that we're offering to the audience. Our performers are going live three nights in a row. So they'll be going live December 4th and 5th at 7.30 p.m. and December 6th at 5.30 p.m. And so any sort of glitches or pauses or anything like that it's all incorporated into the show and it makes for a richer experience the audience can interact live there will be a talk back after every performance where they'll be able to interact with the cast um, and we just think that that's providing that extra layer of connection that people are missing right now especially for those of us who live in the theater, like, you know, you and I do, Lois. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Nothing can replace live performance. You know, we wanted to, we thought it was important to, to have that kind of live element. And the actors, it's so funny to see them kind of improvise in that live element as well. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Will the plays be performed in the same sequence each of the three days? Yes. So the all six plays will perform all three days. We'll start with the year 2000, which is Chatterbox, and we'll end with Long Time No See. Calandra Smith, Bridget Burton, Aaron Considine, thank you very much. Thank you, Lois. And can we mention one more thing? Please. 
So we really wanted to make this a fun event at home for folks around Fulton County. So we're really excited that we were actually able to partner with some restaurants so people can do dinner and a show at the house to kind of have that full theater experience that so many of us are missing. I mean, dinner and a show just goes together. You know, we all know this. And so we want to say that we were able to partner with the Georgia Women's Food Festival, which is taking place the same week as Interface is going to be going live. And so if folks order from Sweet Auburn Barbecue, Nakato Japanese, Edible Endeavors, or Wahoo Grill and mention Interface, there may be some carryout specials and things for them to take advantage of. So we just wanted to throw that out there because there's going to be some dinner and a show packages going to happen for that. That is yeah. fantastic. We've also partnered with Maker's Mark. They're going to be providing ingredient kits to our cast and crew um, <laughs> for us to enjoy opening night drink and toast. So we are they're very thankful for Maker's Mark and their brand for just wanting to support the art. So we'll, we will have a virtual opening night party. Um, Wait, before, before the performance, Bridget? <laughs> It'll be after the, oh. after the performance on Friday night. <laughs> after, okay. after, after, after. This, this is not going to be your answer to drunk Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) No, the Baker's Mark is after the show. After the show. After the show. And a clarification, I think our youngest person is 22, just so that we're not (laughs) not endorsing alcohol. Okay. It's all legal. Again, congratulations on getting this wonderful grant from Fulton County and on what you did with it. Thank you so much. We so appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and we hope that people will tune in, whether it's one night or all three nights, get your dinner through the Georgia Women's Food Festival, get your cocktail kits through Baker's Mark and (laughs) have a good time at the house. You know, we want people to just have fun and know that they are supporting 22 local artists who had been unable to work due to the pandemic and giving them an opportunity to create and do something fun. Theater critic Calandra Smith, co-creator with Bridget Burton of Interface. They were joined by Aaron K. Considine, whose work Good Manhunter is part of Interface, an evening of virtual plays. You can stream them on YouTube and Facebook Live, December 4th through the 6th. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash For two and a half decades at the Cathedral of St. Philip, the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus has presented a joyous holiday concert with its message of inclusion. This year's concerts will be performed Friday through Sunday, December 4th, 5th, and 6th, and the program will be virtual. But to artistic director Don Milton, that means reaching many more people near and far. So with his usual upbeat attitude, we welcome back conductor Don Milton. Thank you for joining us, Don. So happy to be with you, Lois. And art is different right now. And you are still championing art in Atlanta in this virtual time. And it's really special. 
Oh, thank you. Well, let's talk about this special concert. The program is subtitled 25 Years in the Cathedral. Yeah, so this is the 25th year that we've been in the Cathedral of St. Philip. And what has been the relationship between the chorus and St. Philip during that time? It's a really amazing story that 25 years ago, the director at the time, David Puckett, went to the cathedral and asked if the Gaiman's Chorus could perform there, and they said yes. But then some of the members at the cathedral at the time weren't very happy with it and went to the leadership and said, if you let the Gaiman's Chorus perform here, we're going to leave. And the cathedral said, well, okay, you can leave. And for a large religious institution in the South, especially such a public religious institution in the South, like the Cathedral of St. Philip, to do that in the mid-90s is a really big deal. To stand up for the LGBTQ community uh, in such a public way was a huge deal for, for us and, and for the entire LGBTQ community. So we're so grateful to them. We've had such a great relationship for 25 years. And, and going into this year, knowing everything was strange and virtual, they allowed us to do some recording in the cathedral. We have a couple of live pieces that for that our small groups are singing and some virtual choirs that are part live recorded and part virtual. And I'm grateful to, to Trammell Williams at the, at the cathedral for helping set this all up. And if you haven't been in there, it is, is, a, is a breathtaking space. It is so gorgeous. And so we're able to, to bring that space into our virtual world. And I'm very excited. Now, you open the concert with O Holy Night. Would you tell us a bit about this arrangement? I will. You know, I arranged this when I was 22 years old, uh, specifically for one chord. I wanted this big F major chord with a B natural and a G in it, with the tenor singing the high G. It just kind of stuck with me. And I've, I've performed it many times, but I think O Holy Night is like 75% of people's favorite Christmas song. Oh, 
it's so popular that the melody is so just soaring and glorious and it lends itself so beautifully to a chorus. What works in the virtual world with this is that the piece opens with a soloist by themselves and it's very spacious. They sing a line and then wait and let it just live in the air and then sing a line and wait and let it live in the air and then the chorus joins and I like to think that every Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus holiday concert has a moment that gives you goosebumps and a moment that makes you cry and a moment that makes you laugh and a moment you'll never forget, you know? And, and this is that goosebump moment. Now, a Nigerian carol, Betelehemu, has become a staple of holiday concerts. And this song, based on Yoruban, a Nigerian folk text, actually has a local connection. Would you talk about the Atlantic connection to Betelehemu? Absolutely. You know, this has been the staple song of the Morehouse Glee Club for such a long time. They've traveled the world performing it. You know, when I was in college, the Michigan Men's Glee Club did a concert with the Morehouse Men's Glee Club, and they, they performed it and just blew the roof off the place. And so this is our, our own take on Betelehemu. Uh, we have a, a different opening with a, with a trio of soloists that just bring the house down. And part of this concert is favorite songs from the last two seasons. So this is actually a recording of a song we did two years ago in the cathedral with a hundred men and uh, a full audience in the house. And I believe it was at that point that the third song on the program and the audience gave a big standing ovation. It was just uh, really just brought the house down. Don, what can you tell us about Over the Skies of Yisrael? It is a song that the Gay Men's Chorus has been doing for years. It has a beautiful, rich piano arrangement, and the chorus just soars on it. They sound like a million dollars. We always try to bring uh, a Jewish song into, into our holiday concerts. This year we happen to have two. Also a setting of, of Bashana Haba'ah that our assistant director, David Artadi, put together. And it's a jazzy, bouncy Hanukkah song, while this is a, a song, a dream of peace in Over the Skies of Israel. And we all could use some of that. Mm-hmm. How did silver bells become silver bears? <laughs> What's um, with that? As I said, it's important that everyone has a great laugh at the holidays, too. You know, 
This is a lighthearted holiday concert. I like to say we do the most fun holiday concert in town. One of the things we've been doing is is creating virtual choirs and uh i believe singing in a chorus is one of the most gratifying human experiences you can have you you get together with people you care about and you, and you breathe together and you you're creating beauty and and the gratification is constant every every time you tune a chord every every time you lock a vowel or sing a beautiful phrase and you get that that rush of endorphins, that that oxytocin, but but singing virtually has so little of that. I mean, we're all by ourselves in our houses, looking at a screen. I'm talking or or playing recordings, and people are singing on mute. But there is significant delayed gratification. Uh, just just yesterday, uh, AJ Kolink, one of the guys who's doing both audio and video engineering for us, uh, he actually moved to Europe a month ago. But since we're all virtual, he's still a member of the chorus, <laughs> and he he sent me uh, one of our virtual choirs that I got to see for the first time. It's another Nigerian song called Oba Sej. It's an Advent carol, mean Here Comes the King, and I got to see it for the first time, and it's so joyful. And there's drums, and there's dancing and seeing all the men having fun. It was just, it lifted my spirits. I felt so great for hours. And it's another thing that that, that delayed gratification is really special, but it's, it's not the same as getting together every week. Uh, so I'm, I'm really proud of the men in this chorus for, for sticking it out. Oh, this year's concert will include the comedic favorites, Recycle the Fruitcake, and, of course, Super Gay Christmas. Would you give us the backstory on those two songs? <laughs> oh, I can tell you that uh, Recycle the Fruitcake was the end of our Act One last year, and I can tell you I've never had a funnier time performing anything in my entire life. Recycle the Fruitcake is is a, a silly song telling a story about a grandma that just keeps bringing the same fruitcake out every year, even though nobody eats it, and then she ships it all around the world. But we did it with a bunch of costumes and dancing, and it was it's just so funny. I mean, I, I recall standing there conducting and just not being able to look at the guys in costume because th just their faces were so hilarious. And then... Super Gay Christmas is a song arranged by uh, Paul Caldwell and Sean Ivory. Paul Caldwell is the director of the Seattle Gay Beds Chorus. And it is, it's our little encore, and it is an absolute scream. Oh, I hope you have a super gay Christmas. Kiss me by the fire, kiss me by the tree. Oh, I hope you have a super gay Christmas. Kiss me by the fire, kiss me by the tree. 
Have a Merry Christmas and a super gay year. Woo! That one we've had the guys record audio to and then did it kind of music video style. So it's, it is not to be missed. It, it'll be the earworm for the rest of your holiday season. Don Milton is the artistic director of the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus. Their holiday concert, 25 Years in the Cathedral, can be streamed through Sunday. More information about the event will appear on our website at wabe.org slash citylight. The High Museum of Art is featuring a major traveling exhibition of works by the Ethiopian-born American artist Julie Meritu. Michael Brooks is the High Museum's curator of modern and contemporary art. He joins us now via Zoom to talk about this show. Michael, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's so great to be with you again. Ah, now, for those unfamiliar with Julie Meritu, how would you describe her art? Oh, wow. Well, that's a tall order. But for those who don't know her work, she's a painter, predominantly known as a painter, although printmaking and drawing is important in her practice. So there are, all three practices are intertwined. And she's become known for these monumental paintings, these massive paintings and cycles of paintings. Um, one in particular that is the sort of heart of the exhibition or the center of the exhibition is called Mogama, a painting in four parts. And the High Museum owns one of the four panels in that cycle. And why is this especially significant for this show? It represents a culmination, it, I think, in... Julie's career that happened around the time of the Egyptian revolution. And this cycle of paintings titled Mugama refers to the administration building on uh, Tahrir Square in Cairo. And if you recall, Tahrir Square is the site, the sort of site of social activity and the site of uprising during that revolution. So the paintings synthesize these sites around the world of revolution, of uprising, of social change across histories, uh, across the 20th century into the present. Michael, the word omnivore comes to mind with Julie Meritu's inspirations. Would you tell us about her range of sources and subjects? Absolutely. And Omnivore is the right word. She is uh, omnivorous, whether it is classical poetry, contemporary poetry, um, contemporary art or old master painting. And uh, her subjects uh, include conditions and uh, uh, situations that are urgently relevant to our contemporary moment, including migration, revolution, revolutions happening around the world, climate change, um, how global capitalism is impacting uh, global politics, uh, as well as technology, and how all of these things and other things um, have an impact on the porousness of borders and boundaries in our world. And then she's omnivorous 
in styles as well that she incorporates. Would you talk about those? Yeah, she's evolved um, from the mid-90s to where she is today. And I think the exhibition brilliantly spans this arc of her career, which is broad. And when you, when you see the exhibition, and I can't wait to walk with you through it, you'll see how it um, makes sense in terms of her thought process and in terms of her subjects and sources. For example, the early works are related to her practice drawing and the invention of symbols, graphic symbols that she calls characters. And this came out of her desire to mine her own uh, ethnography, her own history, familial history, and who she is. She, she identifies as a mixed-race queer immigrant living in the United States. And so by exploring that through these small drawings that begin to resemble maps or grids and placing these characters on XY axes in order to, to suggest some semblance of logic or rationale, she began to think about her place in the world and then by extension, actually, as those explorations on paper were extrapolated into larger paintings in the early 2000s, 2000, 2001, those explorations of the self were projected into the world at large. And so uh, she started thinking about how we, we as a community, as a society, can locate ourselves within history and the layers of history. So you'll see in these early paintings, which I think perhaps may be, well, I think they're as, just as well known as the newer works, these strata, um, these layers of information that are suspended in acrylic. So they're, it's almost like they're fossilized, you know, sets of data and information that refer back to ancient civilizations and societies, but also refer back to our present moment and suggest, you know, uh, possible futurities for us as we, we try to grapple with so many epic problems in the world right now. Michael, she has many large-scale pieces in the exhibition. Does she work exclusively in monumental-sized paintings now? Well, not exclusively. So you'll see the new work, the format has changed. So many of the monumentally sized paintings correspond to sort of the dimensions of cities. And so they're either vertical or horizontal dramatically and are huge to convey the sense of this um, aggregate of architecture in the city. And also for, for one to become immersed in the paintings in, in, a, in a way so that they can become in their own imagination, almost like a flaneur, in these abstract paintings that have uh, direct references to architecture of the past and present. I read that Julie Maritou is a MacArthur Fellow. Clearly her intellect is full throttle, if you will. And her work is so layered and abstract, Michael. What challenges has that abstract thinking as well as the art presented you in providing context for her work? Well, uh, Julie is one of the most rigorous thinkers I've ever met. She truly is a genius that uh, MacArthur honor 
that she received uh, is absolutely appropriate. She is someone who thinks on so many different levels at the same time. And that's communicated in, in the work, I think, uh, really brilliantly. And I think people respond to that, even if they may not be plugged into specific references or sources, those sources can be excavated in paintings if one spends time with them, which, which one has a tendency to do when you get when you're in front of these paintings, you want to spend a lot of time with them. But for me as a curator, acquiring the painting Magama for the High Museum was important because Maritou has reintroduced painting as politically relevant and consequential in the last 20 years, and not in, in, in a way that is different from a lot of other painters working today. She's been able to consider the histories that we share and the histories that we're complicit in. Michael Rooks is the curator of contemporary art for the High Museum. The Julie Meritu exhibition will be on view through January 31st. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear from John Carr, the artistic director of Dad's Garage Comedy Improv, is moving to Chicago to become the executive producer for The Second City, the premier improv and sketch comedy theater. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.